Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is invisible. This is a sound wave vibration. Thank you for being here for the official Christmas episode of the program. Uh, Yes, uh, that is correct, ladies and gentlemen. Christmas, it's here. The holidays, uh, it's a magical time of year. We are now currently in it. We are embroiled in it. Have you gotten uh, your gifts? Have you gift-wrapped them? Have you uh, gotten onto a train? Are you on an airplane? Are you taxing to the terminal? Are you eating something? Are you eating a Hot Pocket? Are you... What are you doing? Are you lingering in the aisle? And so on. Uh, So what is happening? It is nighttime here in Los Angeles. I'm a little bit tired. I ate some dinner earlier, uh, some uh, nutritious food, and then uh, I was putting my daughter to bed... And I'm in her nursery, and uh, this is sort of a this is sort of a touching story. Uh, I'm in her nursery. I'm rocking in a rocking chair, and she's sitting with me, and uh, I'm getting uh, getting ready to read some books to her before bed, as I as I will do uh, in the evening. And you know, she's like two years old. For those of you who don't know, so uh, we're playing this game that we play every night. It's called Best Parts, Worst Parts, 
and uh, it's pretty simple. I basically just ask my daughter what the best and worst parts of her day were, and uh, then we talk about it. And it's a fun game to play with a kid. Like, you hear some funny things, and uh, so I'm sitting there, and we're playing this game, and my daughter tells me about her day, and, you know, it's it's little things. It's the little things that uh, during the day that make her happy or not so happy. And, uh, you know, as she's finishing up, it occurs to me for the first time that I should play too, which I haven't done yet to this point. Uh, But now, you know, I now sort of realize that she can understand me well enough and, you know, I should give it a shot. So uh, I I go to tell her, uh, you know, what the best part of my day was. And I'm going to tell her that the best part of my day was uh, hanging out with her. And uh, as I say this, as I go to say this out of nowhere... Uh, I actually get emotional <laughs> uh, out of nowhere, and uh, it surprises me, and my voice catches like I'm going to cry, and it was this really touching moment, I think, uh, but there was also something distinctly pitiful about it, and uh, the way that I realized this was, uh, like, I remember, you know, looking down uh, at my daughter as this is happening, and it was quick, you know, like, I gathered myself fairly quickly, it was, it was more like my voice caught uh, it cracked, you know, and it was this catch in my throat. And uh, so I'm recovering from this, but, it, you know, my eyes are watering a little bit. And I remember looking down at my daughter and she's looking up at me uh, like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and, you know, not like in a, uh, oh, my God, I'm so worried kind of way. It was more like, uh, get it together, Dad. <laughs> You're acting crazy. It was that kind of thing. And uh, as it happened, it occurred to me that she was right, uh, or that she had a point. And it was an odd and uh, humbling and ultimately amusing moment where my daughter essentially told me that I'm losing it for the very first time. So, it was watershed. It was a watershed moment. Uh, So, Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy Holidays. Thank you for listening. Thank you uh, for giving me the gift of your listenership. Do you hear me? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. My guest today is Mira Gonzalez. She is a young writer from Los Angeles, and her debut poetry collection is called I Will Never Be Beautiful Enough to Make Us Beautiful Together. I will never be beautiful enough to make us beautiful together. How is that for a incredibly depressing title, but yet uh, a lovely title? Uh, anyway, uh, I will never be beautiful enough to make us beautiful together is due out from Sorry House in late January. I believe it's the 26th. Also, uh, Mira is about to move to Brooklyn, New York. She may be there by the time you hear this. Also, uh, Mira is active on a website uh, called Twitter. Here she is, everybody the lovely and talented Mira Gonzalez. I got uh, caught in traffic. I'm sure you've heard every excuse in the book, but um, yeah, I took Fairfax like a big dumb idiot. Traffic jam. Yeah, awful traffic jam. Swearing. Uh, Yeah, I was swearing. I was flipping off cars, the whole, (laughs) all of that. (laughs) You know, rear-ending people just a little bit, like a little love tap. No, but you don't strike me as somebody who uh, would have road rage. No, I don't at all. I've never, like, I don't think I've ever even honked my horn that I can, like, remember, really. Like, I, I'm not very aggressive. You're not. Do you, re- do you repress? Um, I hope not. <laughs> I, uh... Like, how do you deal with your anger? I don't feel angry very often. I think, like, if something bad is happening to me, I tend to get, like, stressed or sad or something like that, but I don't... You're just like disappointed in people. Yeah. You just give somebody a look in your car like, I'm just so disappointed in you for cutting me off. <laughs> it's like an emotional thing, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I sort of have the road rage. I need to tamp it down. Really? Yeah. Do you like hit other cars and stuff like that? No, it's not car? like that. It's not like that. It's uh, it's verbal. Mm-hmm. I say really weird things, you know, under my breath. But it's like, it's never like screaming. It's just sort of like vicious uh, strings of expletives. Yeah, I do that like sarcastic conversation with the car in front of you thing sometimes where I'm like, oh no, go ahead. It's my right of way, but you can go. No <laughs> yeah, big yeah, yeah. deal. But yeah. it's never like an angry yelling kind of thing, really. I, I don't I don't see you. I can't imagine you getting angry. Yeah, I don't. I can't really imagine me getting angry either. I mean, obviously, like I've felt angry at many, many points in my life, but I don't. I think like anger isn't really one of my default emotions as a reaction to things. It's not. What is your default? What do you go to? Just emotional sadness? Um, like for things that are negative? Yeah. I guess probably sadness. Like if I'm really stressed out about something, I don't generally get like angry. Like if I get frustrated enough, I'll just like cry or something like that. Like I don't generally act out or like get really like upset at people. Um, I don't, I like, I'm not good at like making like a fuss about things or something like that. Like I just just sort of keep it to, to myself a little bit and then let it pass. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a good policy. Yeah. I mean, I like, yeah, I never really acted out or anything like that in my life. Like I was never a a big, um, were you a good kid? Uh, Yes, I think so. I um like I got good grades in school and everything like that. Like when I was younger, I was never like a a problem child or anything. I was pretty pretty quiet. I like kept to myself mostly. You did. <laughs> That's interesting. So like from the, because I mean I, I see you as being fairly social. Like have you come out of your shell as you gotten older? Is that what's happened or? Um, I mean I don't think I was ever really that like 
isolated necessarily. I think when I was younger, I was probably a little bit more shy than I am now, but my family is really social. Like there's a lot of people in my house all the time and stuff like that. And we like, I come from like a big family. And, um, so I think like, like how big, um, I'm one of five siblings. Um, but it's like a mixed family. So I live with my mom and my stepdad and my two brothers and my younger sister. And then I have one other younger sister who lives with my dad. Um, but we have like a lot of like family friends and stuff like that who come to the house a lot and it's like a sort of open. So I think like that made me get more used to being social. Yeah. What are you going to do? You can't, I mean, if you have that many siblings and that many people coming in and out of your house, you can't be in in a shell unless you live in a very big house, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like if I don't want to talk to people, I can hide in my room kind of like I can like close the door and be like, I don't want to interact right now. Do you have a do not disturb sign on your door? (laughs) No, I also don't have a lock or anything like that. I mostly just close the door and hope people get the picture. But a lot of times that doesn't work either. And then people come in the room, which is like, fine. Like I mostly like the people who come over to the house and things like that. So it's like, who are we talking? Just neighbors and stuff? No, not neighbors. Like, um, like family friends, kind of like, uh, friends of my siblings or my friends or my parents' friends, like people who play music with my parents and stuff like that. Okay. So let's get into this. Your parents play music. Yes. Okay. Describe, explain. Um, my mom and stepdad and brother are all in a band together called the Chuck Tukowski Sextet. Um, I don't really know how to describe the type of music. It's like, like psychedelic rock music, I guess. Sounds kind of douchey to say that, but not sure how else to describe it. Um, my stepdad was in a punk band in the eighties that had some success called, called black flag. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then when he married my mom, they uh, he had already had the band, I think. And then she joined, and she's the singer. And then my brother, when he uh, started playing guitar, I think when he was like 13 or 14, joined the band when he was like 16 or something like that. Um, so he got the musical bug. He did. He really got the musical bug. He's like very, very invested in his music. He's a really good guitar player. He's um, Yeah, he also works as a contortionist. Um, so he does like, He's very invested in his contortions as well. Uh, yes. Yes. He's, um, <laughs> sometimes I'll come home at like three in the morning and he'll be doing handstand pushups like outside. Like he's very, like, he's, uh, very good at what he does. He's, um, when they play music, sometimes he'll do like a, a thing where he bends himself in half backwards and plays guitar at the same time, which, uh, a lot of people get freaked out by, but it's really impressive. Like I can barely even touch my toes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, take that Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> playing it on your head. Yeah. It's, um, people freak out about it. I had one girl tell me that she, like I told her who my brother was and she was like, Oh, I know him. I saw him play once and he bent himself in half and I vomited. And I, I was like, really? Like you threw up? And she was <laughs> like, yeah, it really grossed me out. I, I vomited. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Which seemed a little... So is the contortionist stuff, is that just for the music? Is it just for his own fun? Or does he actually perform as a contortionist elsewhere? He performs as a contortionist. He worked for a few circuses, um, doing like contortionism work. Um, like he'll do things sometimes where like, I think he worked at like the Grammys after party or something where he, he like dresses up in crazy outfits and like walks up to people at the parties and like 
contorts. Like, yeah, contorts himself, and they're all, whoa, look at that guy contorting himself. <laughs> <laughs> so he, like, does various jobs. So what do you wear when you contort? Like, is he in, like, a unitard? or? Yeah, I think when he um, does, like, performances, like with circuses, they um, put him in costumes that, like, match the backdrops and stuff like that. But most of the time it's, like, a like a unitard or something flexible like that. And he has to have, um, on the bottom of his feet, he has to have stuff that makes him not slip. Because otherwise, when he's like doing handsprings and things like that, he'll just fall over and hurt himself. Um, so he's a good athlete. He's strong. He's really strong. Yeah. How, what is he built like? Is he wiry strong, or is he like um, big and you know? He's maybe like half an inch shorter than I am, um, and he's very very thin, and he's very like. Well, how tall are you? I'm five eight. Okay. So he's probably like five seven or five seven and a half or something like that. We're like almost the exact same height, but he's like a tiny bit shorter than me, um, and he's like very thin he eats really really healthy and he exercises constantly and he almost doesn't look as strong as he is i think but like i remember one time specifically i was at a coachella music festival um and i was watching i think it was like rage against the machine and i the crowd got like kind of insane and i lost both of my shoes and then i stepped in a hole and i think i stepped on a lit cigarette and maybe a piece of glass or something like that and I was like, oh, I did something to my ankle. Like, I can barely walk on it. My brother was like, oh, okay. And lifted me up like like a baby. Like, just held me and literally carried me all the way to the first aid tent. And I was like, you don't have to do this. Like, I can hobble. And he's like, no, it's fine. Like, it's no big deal. And it seemed like it was <laughs> not a problem for him at all. So, Wow. Yeah. It's like Superman. Yeah, kind of. Okay, so tell me about this band some more. So, like, they, you know, this is interesting. You've got, like, a family band. Yeah. And they tr- do they tour and stuff together? Yeah, we um they went on a tour in Europe a few years ago, which I also went on. We went to uh, Belgium and Amsterdam. Okay. Um, and they played a music festival in Belgium. Um, and then they went on a tour recently uh, in the United States. They went, I don't remember where exactly. They went some places in the Midwest, some places on the East Coast, and things like that. Um, and they played. Uh, I don't know. They'll play like things in like San Diego and Palm Springs and stuff like that. Like a few hours outside of Los Angeles a lot. And they play shows in Los Angeles all the time. But, um, I think touring, uh, they do tour, but it's a little bit difficult because I have a 13 year old sister, um, who's like in school and stuff like that. And you, you got to get her on the drums soon yeah, or something. Soon enough. One day, <laughs> <laughs> maybe singing or something. So when you went to Europe, there was like a summer thing and the whole family just packed it up and went over there. Yeah. I was like 16, I think. Um, and it was during the summer and we went first to Belgium and stayed there for a while. And then they played a music festival there. And then afterwards we all decided to go to Amsterdam just for fun. Um, Amsterdam is fun and uh it was good I mean I was 16 and like the legal drinking age in Europe is 16 so that was really fun sure um and Amsterdam is like beautiful and everyone who lives there is beautiful and they ride these beautiful bicycles everywhere Mm. and it's like a wonderful place but it was good they played um they played a music festival that had some other bands that I liked and that was really fun to go to it was interesting. It's a good age to get to go over there. Yeah, yeah, I definitely. Uh, Were you in a tour bus and everything? No, there wasn't a tour bus. It was. Um, we like stayed in a in a hotel, and they had uh, like vans that would pick us up and bring us back and forth. The um, the music festival they played at actually they had like a I think it was a high school or something like that that they had. I don't really know. They had rented it out maybe, um, and were using that to have the bands like like if they're like 
I don't know, like, abandoned out, like, a trailer or something like that. They were using the high school for that purpose. Um, so, like, before and after they played, we got to, like, basically stay in this, like, r- classroom of a high school um, that had, like, nice couches and things like that and, like, everything that we asked for on the rider. Um, and then, like... What yeah. did you ask for? Do you want everything to be all white? White <laughs> roses? Yeah, velvet everywhere. Like J-Lo? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think we asked for, like... I think maybe the drummer at the time asked for, like, vodka and, like, beers. I think we asked for, like, snacks, like cheese and crackers and things like that and, like, fruit and stuff. Um, it was fun, though. No like, no green M&Ms. <laughs> pick all the green M&Ms out. That yeah, would... take them all out. I only want green M&Ms, <laughs> right. actually. That's the only... Uh... Well, you hear stories, though, about these, like, celebrity demands and these riders. Like, they've flown, you know, floated around the internet, and it's completely crazy, some of these things that people ask for. Yeah, know? I heard, uh, I read recently that uh, Beyonce and, like, a few other people do this thing where they'll ask for a puppy for a night. Um, they can, like, <laughs> rent out a puppy and have it stay with them in their hotel room just for the night, and then they can, like, give it back in the morning just because they want the companionship or something. Like, the good energy? Yeah, I guess so. It seems sort of sort of bizarre, like, puppy <laughs> prostitution or something. <laughs> Charlie Sheen wants a puppy for the night. <laughs> um, okay, so you didn't get the music bug. No, I... Um, Can you sing? I'm not really sure. I uh, The only time I sing is probably when I'm like alone in my car or something like that. Experiencing um, road rage. Instead of rage, you just yeah, sing. Yeah, I just sing loudly. <laughs> I just yell to songs. Um, my mom's a really good singer, so I guess it's possible that I inherited that somehow. But you're too shy to do it? I guess I, yeah. Well, you know if you can sing. <laughs> I mean, I guess I can sing. I, I never really, like, tried to in the setting of, like, a band or something like that. See, this um, is what's going to happen. You're going to move to Brooklyn, and you're going to be, like, shy, and then there's going to be some band, and they're like, we don't have a singer. And then you're going to be like, well, I can kind of sing, and then you're going to get the <laughs> microphone, and then it's going to be one of those things where you're going to be too shy to face the audience at first, and then you're going to become a big star, and you're going to exceed your entire family, and it's going to be this big underdog story. I'm I just, not sure. I just figured it out. <laughs> you just figured it all out. There yeah. it is. My life plan is right there. I can see it. You're like the next Nico or something. <laughs> um, so you don't, I mean, you can sing, but you're not into it. Yeah. I mean, I like music and I like going to see music and I like listening to music and I'm interested in, in music in general. Um, but I guess like, uh, like in like middle school and like early high school and stuff like that, I think I, I learned to play bass a little bit. Um, I think I've probably forgotten all of it by now because I didn't practice or anything. Um, did it come easily to you? Uh, sort of. Um, I think I didn't like practice enough to really be good at it or like to really know how to like play something in the context of a band or anything like that. Um, if I'd stuck to it, I probably like by now would have been able to, to do some stuff. I'm sure like. I don't know. Maybe I inherited musical genes from someone somewhere, but... But I feel like if you live in a family of musicians and you're surrounded by it all the time and there's instruments in the house and people are singing and there's music on the speakers, I think that obviously has an impact. And I feel like... I don't know. I know know a lot of it's genetic, but some of it I think is just an issue of confidence. And it's like, I think you permit yourself to be confident or it feels so much more natural when there's people in your family who are doing it. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. It's like um, the family business. People play music. Yeah. I mean, I definitely like my whole life was influenced to, to go into like, like if I had decided to do something involved in music, like my parents would have been 100% supportive and like, you know, gotten me shows and things like that. Um, but I guess it, it does appeal to me. Like I, I really 
respect musicians and like enjoy music a lot, but I think it just wasn't something that I could really see myself doing in the long term. Like, I think I could maybe be happy being a musician, but I think there's other things like writing and stuff like that that are more artistically satisfying. Yeah. So, what do you see? How old are you? I'm 20. Okay, so you're young. Yes. What do you, and you and you're at the beginning of your adult life. Yes. So, what do you see for yourself? Oh God. Um, do you have a? I mean, not that you have to have a vision, but I mean, do you have a vision? I don't know. I mean, it would be nice to be able to pursue a career in writing and to be able to write more books and make money off of that. Um, I know it's becoming like increasingly more difficult to like get like publishers and things like that and to like earn enough money to live comfortably from writing. Um, that would be great though. I mean, that would be like, as of now, I think that would probably be ideal for me and like, I'll do everything I can to like get towards that. This podcast is going to make it happen for yeah, you. Do this you realize <laughs> this, this is an explosive moment in your career? <laughs> this is the beginning. Um, so have you always been a book nerd writer person? I, yeah, I would say so. I mean, in, um, in elementary school, I think at one point I read The Phantom Tollbooth, and I think that is, like, what, like, if I had to say the moment that I began to become interested in, like, books and writing would probably be after I read that. Um, my brother Milo is named after The Phantom Tollbooth because my mom liked it so much. Um, I think, like, I read it, and I felt, to a certain degree, like affectionate towards the author of the book for creating characters that I identified with so much. And I think that made me realize that I could do things like that. And I could like write books that people would identify with, or I could write, you know, poems or anything like that, that would make people feel slightly less alienated. Um, yeah. And I think like throughout like elementary school and middle school, I would, read books. And I think it just made me feel like a little bit better or something. Um, I read a lot of books, like just strictly for entertainment purposes. Like uh, what? Like, I don't know, like stupid books. I think like I read like, you know, Harry Potter or like the Da Vinci code or whatever, when I was much younger. Um, and then I think like, I enjoyed reading those. Like I would read them for the same reasons that someone would watch TV or play video games or something like that. Um, but then every now and then I would find a book that I really identified with. Like I think in middle school, I read the outsiders and I was like, wow, I really identify with this book. Like I really enjoyed this book. And I think I read it three or four times. And then like later on, I think I started to realize like, what are the types of books that I identify with and started to read more of those. And I think that made me feel like, like I had always written things um but i never really edited things to the point where it would be something that i would want to read in a book until later on until i started to realize like the types of things that i enjoy reading in books and what are those things um i think like towards the end of high school i started reading books by murakami um and i think that stylistically the way that he described emotions and things like that and like weird mysterious things and how he goes on sometimes for pages and pages describing like what someone ate in a day or something like that I found that to be really interesting and I think that was like a moment for me when I realized that it's possible to not only create characters that you identify with or create a plot line that's compelling but 
to also do it in a way that's stylistically beautiful or poetic or something that that seems like aesthetically appealing to me. Well, and also to to draw out something as mundane as what somebody had to eat that day and make it interesting over the course of four or five pages. Yeah, whatever. yeah, definitely. I think I'm um I'm definitely interested in books that can do that that can describe like very small details of things for a really long time or like one small thought or like a, a feeling that would generally pass by and not be noticed in the context of like a plot driven novel. Um, I'm interested in books that spend a long time describing things like that. Um, because I feel like so much of life is that like the weird little thoughts that just sort of pass by. And it's like interesting to me to, to hear people try and go in depth to describe those things. Yeah. Well, it's it's hard to do. I mean, it's it's one thing to do it, but it's another thing to do it well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know? I think it could. I think a lot of books that I read and enjoy, um, a lot of other people may perceive as like boring or something like that, or or maybe dense or something. Um, like the Murakami books, because they go on and on describing like very small details of things, um, which I enjoy. But I guess a lot of people would prefer like a plot driven novel or something like that, which makes sense. Like I've enjoyed plot driven novels too, but I think, I think after reading books like books by Murakami, I started to realize that there was like a certain style that I enjoyed from books, um, apart from like plot and things like that. But I mean, is it like, well, tell me if this is accurate. It's like sometimes you read somebody and they employ a voice or they, I mean, it's, to me, it's like voice. Like sometimes when you read people who speak in a voice, you, you can actually understand and you feel like, oh, I can do this. Yeah. Like I can do this. Like I read certain books and I'm like, this is really great and I admire it, but I, there's no way I could yeah. ever, is that kind of what it was yeah, like? Yeah, definitely. I think it's like, um, it'd be like an artist with a painting or something like that. Like an artist could enjoy uh, an extremely detailed, like photorealistic painting, but maybe their painting style is more abstract or something like that. Right. Um, I think I definitely enjoy books that are in a different style than I would like to write in. But I think at some point I started reading books and realizing I can write like this. Like I could edit the things that I write into something that would be similar to this or something that is inspired by this. So are you working on fiction? Are you working on a novel or anything like that? Um, I just finished a book of poetry. Um, and I think next I would like to work on a novel, although it's extremely daunting. So I would need to, yeah, I need to get started on that. Well, what's the name? Tell me the name of the book of poetry. It's called, I'll never be beautiful enough to make us beautiful together. Okay. Let's talk about this title. (laughs) Who is this? Uh, who are you referring to in the title? Uh, me, I guess. (laughs) I think I'm referring to me. It feels like, but it feels like, uh, you know, but it feels like you're talking to some sort of, uh, lover. It feels like you're, you know, is it addressed to some past, uh, Um, relationship or something? I think when I wrote it, it was addressed to a past relationship. Um, I think now it's probably because it's like the title of my book and I have to say it over and over again and think about it so much. It probably has taken on like a broader meaning, but I think when I wrote it it was the title of a poem in the book um and i think when i wrote it i was in like a not so good relationship um with someone i i i think i like i felt like it was sort of in my hands or something like that like the whole relationship um and like i i mean that's what i felt like i'll never be beautiful enough to make this relationship 
be beautiful. Um, yeah, and I think uh, I think it it is meant to refer to a feeling of failure in a relationship, like a feeling of of not ever being quite enough to make the relationship good, and a feeling like not like the other person isn't quite enough, or you're both not quite enough, but you specifically are not quite <laughs> enough in the relationship. It's a and, wonderful feeling, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's great. Like there's some kind of like inherent flaw that's making the relationship not work. Right. Um, and I think that's... Isn't it? Like it's so brutal. And I feel like this was, I mean, I'm, I've been married now, so I'm out of the game. But like when you're, especially when I was young and like around your age or even uh, younger, you know, it's like that 16 to 24 or 25 window, maybe. Yeah. Uh, you come to grips at certain stages, or at least I did with the brutality of like, it's just never going to work because of X <laughs> about me or yeah. this person is just never going to like me. Yeah. It's so hard. That's such a hard thing to like come to grips with. It's awful. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think that's um, definitely what the title is referring to. I think when I, when I wrote it, that's definitely what I felt in the relationship I was in. Like, like there's something wrong with me. Like there's something and I'm not entirely sure what it is, but something is inherently flawed and that's, what's making this relationship. Not well, yeah. Work. And then, and then somebody would say, no, there's nothing wrong. You're perfect just the way you are. There's nothing wrong with you. And I'm like, you know, uh, yeah, I, I sort of get that argument at the, in the ultimate sense, we're all made of the same stuff and this is the way nature intended us and everything. But the truth is that in the context of this relationship or in the context of this person, I'm not all right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, like like when they say it's not just you, it's me. It's like, no, actually it's, it's all me. It's like all there's me. something really wrong with me. It's making everything go bad. See, I'm incapable. This is, I, I don't know if it's like just a personality defect or it's just, I I'm incapable of like having that sunny, rosy outlook. Well, I guess it just didn't work out. It wasn't meant to be. <laughs> yeah, I uh, definitely haven't taken on that outlook so much. I mean, like sometimes in a relationship, it's like, okay, you can see obviously like you tried and it didn't work and like, oh, well, but then sometimes it gets so messy or something like that. And there's like so many hard feelings between people. It's really difficult to have that rosy outlook like, oh, well, there's something wrong with either of us. Um, I think I tend to go the opposite way and think like, no, there's something really wrong with me that's making <laughs> this not work. Something's really... Is it always you? Do you? Are you a person who kind of puts it on herself all the time or do you sometimes put it on other the other person? I would say that in the past, I think I've mostly put it on myself. I think in relationships I've had that didn't work out, like I can see where there's flaws in the people that I'm dating that would make me want to not be in a relationship with them. But then I think in the end of the day, if something doesn't work and I'm sad about it, I tend to turn it in on myself and be like, well, you know, I just, there's something really wrong with me here. It's making this not work. So, oh, well, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Time to just go into my room and write some poetry. You're just going to (laughs) hide, lock my door, you know, do not disturb sign, all that. Listen to some sad music. <laughs> Look at the glow in the dark stars on my ceiling. Just listen to bright eyes on repeat and cry. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I want to come back to your writing life. Uh, but before we do that, I want to ask you about your childhood some more and specifically growing up in Los Angeles. Born and raised? Yeah, I was um, born in an apartment, actually, in Mar Vista. Which in is, an apartment. I was born in an apartment. I was a home birth. My mom... Gave birth to me in an apartment with a midwife in Mar Vista. Like in a kiddie pool type situation or just in in a bed? bed. In a bed. Yeah, just in a bed. That's what she did with all of my siblings. Um, So me and my older brother and my younger sister. Were you present for any of these births? 
uh, when my younger sister was born, um, we were living in a house in Mar Vista near where I was born. Um, with It was me and uh, my mom and my stepdad and my two brothers. And then my mom was pregnant with my younger sister. Um, and when she was born, I remember waking up the next day and walking. I'd slept through the whole, whole birth, the whole thing. And I walked into my mom's room because I realized, like, I'm late for school. Oh, my God. Um, and I slept in like an hour past school. So I was like, I walked into her room and I was like, am I going to school? And I saw that she was holding like this tiny infant against her chest. And I was like, I remember my first thought was like, oh, is my mom babysitting someone's child? <laughs> like what's going on? And then she looked at me and she was like, the baby was born. And I was like, oh my God. And I ran and knocked on both of my brother's doors and woke everyone up. And I was like, the baby's here. It was born. Oh my God. And you know, it was like seven in the morning or whatever. Um, your mom just had a kid overnight. She just had a kid in overnight. In her bed. In her bed. And no I drugs, nothing. It. No drugs, nothing. She's pretty badass. That's tough. <laughs> yeah. Is that what, that's what you're going to do someday to carry the tradition on? or I think that, yeah, I, I don't want to have a baby in a hospital, I don't think. I think I would rather have the baby like in a bed in my house with no drugs. I just wa- just wade out into the ocean? Just Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> just, you know, some beautiful lake somewhere and just like silently give birth to a child. <laughs> Oh, that's so hardcore. I mean, I have witnessed my wife, you know, have our daughter and seems traumatic. Yeah. I, there's no way with this, you know, not, in, not at home. I can't <laughs> do it. I want a medical team around. Me. Um, so, okay. So you were raised Los Angeles childhood. What was it like to grow up here? Cause I've lived here now for 12 years almost, but I, you know, grew up in the Midwest. Like, was it a fairly normal place to grow up? Do you think, or do you think it, produce something strange in you in the way that so many people from outside of Los Angeles might perceive that it would? Um, you know, it's weird. I have lived here my entire life and I've pretty much until recently only interacted with people who have lived here their entire life. So I feel like I don't have a lot of context. Um, but like recently interacting with other writers who are from different places and stuff like that, um, has like given me some perspective on what it's like to grow up in Los Angeles. Um, And I think I definitely had, like, a childhood that was different, probably, like, from you growing up in the Midwest. Um, I think L.A. is so spread out, and there's so much of it, that, like, there's so many... It's not so insular or something. Like, there's just so many different types of people and so many, like... There's so many different L.A.'s. Yeah, there's, like, so many different... The neighborhoods are so distinct and everything. Like, when I tell people I'm from Los Angeles... um, I feel like they think of Hollywood or something like that immediately. And I always feel like I want to like correct them and be like, no, I'm from West Los Angeles. That's a, that's a different thing, you know, but that doesn't mean anything to someone who isn't from Los Angeles. Right. Um, so what's your home turf? Like, what do you consider your, your neighborhood? Uh, Venice, I think I, um, yes, yeah, I was born in Mar Vista. And then when I was really young, we like moved around a little bit, um, like between Mar Vista and Venice area. And then when my mom married my stepdad, we lived in a house in Mar Vista for a year. And then we moved into the house that we live in now, which is actually the house that my mom grew up in. Um, we bought it from my grandma and she moved up to Tahunga, like up in the mountains area to this like really beautiful space. Um, you kicked her out. Yeah, we kicked her right out. I was like, grandma, get the hell out of here. We're taking the house. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because when I was younger, I would go to the house to you know visit my grandma who lived there, and now we live in it, um, and it's nice. I like the house a lot. It's like a really it's on the beach basically. We're like one street away from the beach, um, 
so yeah, I would definitely call like Venice my home area. Like if someone asked me where I'm from, I'm from Venice. Um, and I enjoy it a lot. I like really, really like Venice. It's uh, probably one of my favorite areas in LA, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's got like the bohemian. The bohemian spirit lives in Venice. Yeah, my family fits in with that really well. <laughs> <laughs> right, the musicians and yeah. like the drum circles on the beach yeah, and the exactly. boardwalk and. There's a lot of crazy people in Venice, too. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> not, like, just wandering around. I mean, there's a lot of crazy people in Hollywood. But Yeah, it's a different kind of crazy in Venice, though. It's, like, more unique or something like that. Like, you see, like, there's homeless people all over Los Angeles, but somehow in Venice, the homeless people always have, like, you know, giant flags or, like, huge hats or weird decorations. They're on a or, mission. Yeah, they're, like, a like a display. They're, um... Well, uh, my wife and I were in um, Venice for dinner one night. I forget what we were doing. We had some sort of dinner, and then we went walking down on the boardwalk, and it was like, you know, I forget what I, I, I it, there was something really funny about it, but the I forget exactly what the conversation was between us. But what happened was that we we're walking down the boardwalk, and all of a sudden there was like a a paraplegic on a skateboard. Oh, I've seen that guy. I know. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> he's just like a. It's like a. Yeah. He's got no arms, it's no like legs. A torso with feet coming out. Yeah, and, torso, yeah. and he just like, and he's on a skateboard, and he just like his little scooting nub, himself. scooting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were just like, what the? We just like that level of weird yeah. down there, you know. That guy's been around since. I mean, before you were born. Uh, yeah, I mean, at least <laughs> since I was born. Like he's. Uh, I haven't seen him a lot recently. I hope he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 he was definitely around a lot when I was younger, though. And there's a lot of, like, characters like that, I feel like. Because I live basically on the boardwalk. Like, wow. there's one street parallel to the boardwalk. So what is it? Like, you're down by, like, the Jim Morrison mural? Like, that area? Yeah, I'm right by there. I live, like... Um, Trick, you know, like Trick, is it Trick's Rooftop? Is that... I remember, in the, like, the Doors movie. Probably, yeah. Where he yeah. lived on that roof and, like, wrote poetry or whatever. I actually never saw the Doors movie. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, I don't know. Funny enough, my grandma dated Jim Morrison back in the day. Did she? Yeah, which is a, a big story. That Go Grandma. Yeah. What's it? So this is a family tradition of dating rock stars. <laughs> got to live up to this. Yeah, I know. I need to find myself a musician <laughs> to date. <laughs> wow. So your grandmother dated Jim Morrison? She did, yeah. For how long? Uh, Kind of a long time, I think. Like What's her name? Rosanna Norton. Okay. Yeah, she... Uh, is she in, like, the Doors biographies? Is she, like, I, I mean, think she's going to be in a Doors documentary... Uh, soon she was just filmed for it um but i think she's turned down like a lot of offers to like get interviewed and things like that for books and what did she say about him um he must have been weird yeah she says he was a little bit weird she said um like if i ask her about it she i think maybe she didn't say much about it when i was younger just because like of all the drugs he did and things like that but as i was older i think she Basically said, like, the relationship was fine and okay, and then he started doing a ton of drugs, and she was like, okay, well, now you're acting like a crazy person, so I'm I'm out of here. See you later. Listen to Grandma. Yeah, yeah. Good for her. He was, yeah, that's the thing about it, is that, like, there's all that, like, glorification of his behavior, but the truth is that, and I heard some rock star say this once, is that he was just a really bad drunk. Yeah. You had to babysit him. Like, yeah. what the heck do you, you know, you're, you're an adult, you know, like, not that you can't go a little crazy, but... <laughs> I mean, I feel like... 
I feel like maybe I'm not entitled to like go on this podcast and say this, but Jim Morrison does seem like he was kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, on the record, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I feel like that's going to come back to haunt me one day. Well, he was so young. I mean, he died at 27. I mean, yeah. he never even had a chance to like get it together. I mean, together. he's incredibly talented. I love the Doors. Well, and that's the thing. When I listened to his voice, like he truly had like a Sinatra-like voice. Yeah. You know, it was like a powerful, great voice. Yeah, and, there's a reason why he was so famous. Yeah, and he was a great looking guy and he had charisma and I think he was really smart. And I think he was talented. I just think that, you know, uh, he kind of fried himself. Yeah. Well, I mean, same goes for, I feel like a lot of people who are like really invested in their art like that. I think there's a certain amount of, of, I don't know, being social or something like that, or a certain amount of like emotional stability that you have to give up to be able to be that invested in the art that you're doing, even for writers or something like that. I think there's like... It's certain, hard to find balance. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's for people who are who dedicate their lives to something like that, I think it's almost impossible to find a balance between living a normal, like, social life and being able to do your art like that. Are you prepared to make that sacrifice, Mira? <laughs> as you stand on the precipice of your adult life? <laughs> I mean, sometimes I'm like sitting in my room like alone for forty eight hours straight, like I don't know taking Adderall and like looking at the internet and writing things or whatever. And I think like, man, I really shouldn't be so alienated. I should really like go hang out with people and stop like trying to edit the stupid thing I'm writing. But I guess that's kind of what you have to do if you want to be successful. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I, and talk to me about Adderall cause I've never, <laughs> I've never done Adderall, but I feel like a lot of, a lot of writers do it. And especially a lot of like alt-lit writers. And it's kind of like this pervasive thing. It's essentially just speed, right? Yeah. I think, I think it's just, yeah, I think it's basically just speed. It's like pharmaceutical speed. Um, and so I was having this conversation last night about it, and I'm like, basically, this is the equivalent of writer's juicing. It's like taking mental steroids. Yeah. It basically. helps you focus. You can sit there in a sustained state of concentration for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. And you can get stuff done. Yeah. So what does a productive Adderall session look like for you? Like writing like 40 pages of prose? Like, I mean, it depends. Like, it depends on... I guess how much Adderall I take and <clears throat> how much I've slept the night before and things like that. Um, if I've like slept a lot and then I wake up and take Adderall and just focus on writing, I mean, I can get way more done than if I hadn't taken Adderall. And I think like, at least when you take it at first, it's sort of like a, I don't know, like this miracle drug or something. You're like, Oh my God. I can focus for six hours straight and I don't have to eat and I don't have to do anything. I can just focus on this and I can write something that I'm very proud of and that I'm satisfied with. And I don't like, you know, I don't get frustrated trying to edit and things like that. Like it's almost like euphoric or something. Um, but then I think, I think after a while, if you do it enough, then like the high doesn't last as long and the come down is worse. Um, and then obviously like with any drug, you'd want to do more and stuff like that. So I can see, where someone could so easily get addicted to it. I mean, it's speed, yeah. you know, but I think like, especially in the context of people who are trying to do things like writing or art and stuff like that, it's so good for, for focusing that like, I can definitely see why writers specifically would be interested in that drug. Yeah. 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 So how much are you doing? I mean, like, cause you seem like for all of the chatter that you make on the internet about taking Adderall doing drugs and you know, a lot of it I think is tongue in cheek. Like you seem pretty in control. <laughs> Um, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I don't feel like... I mean, you have your shit together, right? Yeah, I don't feel like I'm, like, out of control with my drug use, necessarily. I mean, sometimes, like, 
I don't know, sometimes I'll take a bunch of Adderall and stay up all night and then the next day take Adderall again and then take Xanax to fall asleep or something like that. And then by the end of it, I feel so exhausted and tired. I'm like, God, what am I doing? Like, I shouldn't just drug binge like that. That's, that's a terrible <laughs> idea. Um, but uh, And you do have to be, I mean, you really do have to be careful with pharmaceuticals. You really do. They're yeah. powerful. Yeah. You know? And they can, I mean, you know, it have, people have accidents with those things all the time. Yeah. And it's deceptive, I think, just because they're legal and it's like so easy. You just take a pill or whatever and yeah. you immediately feel like everything is better or okay or something. And I think like... Well, and then the combinations, you know, you mix up combinations and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, that's the thing is that when it's a pharmaceutical that's uh, produced by like a corporate entity and it's approved by the FDA or whatever, it carries with it this like stamp of legitimacy that like, you know, cocaine doesn't have, even though Adderall is essentially just pharmaceutical cocaine, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or even like, yeah crack or something well yeah and and especially the opiates that are really dangerous it's like you get into like dilaudid and you get into um oxycontin and that's just heroin yeah that's all it is i mean the same like yeah with all the pharmaceuticals like adderall or vivance or whatever all those various drugs are just basically speed yeah and you know oxycontin is heroin basically um but i think it's especially now like i know so many people who can just go to their psychiatrist or whatever and get a prescription to Adderall, no problem, even though they obviously don't have ADD. Um, And then, you know, you get it on health insurance and it's basically free. And so they can just easily, like, take this drug constantly over and over and over again. And I can totally see the appeal of doing that because it makes everything, like, you know, just better or something kind of um but it's scary that like it's too easy yeah and it's a candle that burns at both ends there's no way i mean you know this is the thing this is why talk about drugs is always difficult for me because it's a gray area there's always a but yeah and it's like you know there are people who can use that thing and i say use it yeah not abuse it and i mean god it sounds silly even to talk (laughs) but you know what i'm saying like there's a difference between drug users and drug abusers and some people can use drugs and not have a big problem with it and can also create really interesting art while under the influence and some people it's like, it's a slippery slope yeah. and then, you know, then some people in the middle just get caught and there's an accident and something bad happens or something. But yeah. you know, it's just, it's a muddle. There's no one way to like, think of it. Definitely. I think I was, I don't know. I think I'm lucky enough and, you know, knock on wood, um, to not have a very addictive personality or something like that. Like I, I went through a phase, I think during my senior year of high school after I like, I think I'd like broken up with my boyfriend or something and I was feeling really rebellious and I was like, Oh, I'm going to smoke cigarettes. Like, this is going to be great. Like I, all my friends smoke cigarettes. Like it's going to be fun. Um, and I did like a little bit and I would like take cigarettes and people offered them to me and things like that. Um, and then after a while I was just like, this isn't fun. Like I don't like the taste of cigarettes. I'm not like, it doesn't make me high to smoke it. Like there's no point really. And I just stopped and I never had any issues stopping or anything like that. And I never like, you weren't really cigarettes. doing it though. No, you, I wasn't really like, yeah. I'm sure if I had been like, you know, smoking a pack a day or something, it would have been much more difficult for me. But I guess I like, and even with drugs like Adderall and things like that, like I'm sure there's people in the world who use less drugs than I do. And I'm sure maybe it'd be better to use less drugs than I do. But I think I'm lucky enough to not have the type of personality where I immediately feel like I need to do a shitload of this drug, you know, like I immediately feel like, okay, well now that I do this once, I'm going to do this every day. Um, but at the same time I can see that like addiction is a very real thing Sure. and I'm careful to like 
Some not people just that. have it. Some yeah. people just have it, you know, and some people, most people don't. Yeah. That's the thing too, is that most people don't. It's a small subset of people who have that thing where it's like they take one bite and they have to have the whole cake. And yeah. it's like, you know, that's a bummer to have that. But when yeah. you do have that, you have to recognize it because you're pretty much screwed. <laughs> you yeah, know, you don't. <laughs> I mean, I know a lot of people who, you know, have tried various different drugs and just, they were just like, oh, I don't, I don't like this drug. Like, I don't want to do drugs and just didn't do drugs. And I think I'm definitely not like that. I think like I'll try a drug and, and I don't know. I feel like I like anything that makes me feel different than sober. Um, so I feel like I'm definitely not the type of person who can try a drug and immediately be like, oh, I don't like that. I don't ever want to do drugs. Again. Well, but you know, listen, they're fun. Yeah. That's- I mean, come on. <laughs> people aren't doing these things because it's, you know, it's boring or yeah. stupid. You know, there's an element of fun to it. It's why people just why people get drunk. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, it's not like, uh, you know, people are just trying to numb out and forget that what people want to have a laugh and, yeah. you know, change their perceptions or whatever it is. So there's, I think there's intrinsic value in that way too. Yeah. Um, but it's a false high, you know, it comes with a real low. Is that the way yeah, you know? it definitely does? Yeah. And I think even, um, with things like writing and stuff like that, if I take certain drugs or even if I don't sleep for a long time or something, I, I can get a different perspective on things. Um, and as much as like not sleeping or being on downers or something like that probably isn't great for writing. I like if I write while I'm on a drug or while I haven't slept or something, I feel like I can get these perspectives that are different from when I'm sober. And then if I come back to it when I'm sober, I can edit it down to something that I would enjoy reading. Um, so I think as far as drug use goes, that's definitely helpful with writing. Um, I'm not going to lie and say the drug use isn't helpful with the writing. Right. Um, but yeah. And even in social situations and stuff like that, definitely it's, uh, makes things easier or more fun or something. Um, and then what about like growing up in this like kind of bohemian enclave in Los Angeles with these musician parents and like you, it's your mom and your stepdad and then your dad as well was playing a fat, like a role in your life. Um, my dad lives, uh, around here, uh, around the Hollywood area. Um, I didn't really live with him when I was younger. I like stayed at his house on weekends, I think for like maybe half a year or a year or something when I was much younger, just to like try it out. And then I, I decided not to, um, he, uh, had a daughter with his previous wife, who's my half sister and she's 16 now. Um, so we had her before my mom had my younger sister um, and then he divorced his wife and now he's married to another woman. Um, and he works as a computer programmer, so he's not like a musician or whatever, like my mom and stepdad are. Um, but he's like around, I get like dinner with him and stuff like that sometimes, but I've like lived with my mom and stepdad for my whole life. Pretty Your much. whole life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, and so were they all like, when it comes to like growing up, like I'm imagining it's a much more permissive household than maybe the one that I grew up in. Were they pretty like understanding when it comes to like experimenting with drugs and pot and stuff in high school? And like, you don't have to like worry too much about Yeah, no, they're very understanding. I think like, I think that if I had grown up in a house that was more strict and less understanding, like I would have gone insane or something like that. They're like, I think just because... Like, my mom grew up in a really bohemian house also. Um, the house um, that you live in now. Yeah, yeah. And, it's just uh, been a bo- bohemian house for generations. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I want to live there. 
And I think my, my stepdad grew up with like a more conservative, um, sort of, I guess parents were rocket scientists. Um, yeah. And then he like joined black flag. Yeah. He one day. So did you grow up with like Henry Rollins coming around the house? Is that, that's right. I'm, I'm remembering this all right. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. He, when he's in LA and stuff like that, will come around the house and like say hi and things. Just chat you up. (laughs) I feel like an asshole saying that. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool though. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I mean, I think that like, it was really nice growing up in a house like that. Um, they're very supportive of like pursuing a career in art and things. Um, yeah, that's not, you don't have to like sell that to them. They get yeah, it. They're very, very understanding about that. I think in the same way that like someone who grew up in a family of doctors would be influenced to become a doctor. Like I think I was influenced to do something involving art, um, which is nice because that's what I feel Inclined, inclined yeah, yeah, I feel inclined to do that. Um, but yeah, they were always very understanding. Like my mom follows me on Twitter, so like, <laughs> is your mom's on Twitter? Yes, yes. Can we can we plug it's, your mom's Twitter, please? It's at Laura Norton. Okay. N o r t o n. All right. L-O-R-A. Yeah. At Laura Norton, so yeah, we'll have to follow Mira's mom on Twitter. Yeah, she's um she's funny. She like will type out a tweet on her phone, come into my room and be like, Mira, is this an okay tweet? Can I post this? Is this going to embarrass you or anything? Like, is everything okay? And you know, maybe like every now and then, like I'll have a follower who will follow her and she'll be like, who is this person who followed me? It's this, I don't want people to read this. Is this like going to be bad? Is this okay? It's, uh, uh, so, so let's talk about Twitter because you're very active on Twitter. Yes. You have yes. two accounts. Yes. You have I, Mira Gonzalez or Mira Gons. Yes. And then you have Mira unedited. Yes. And the, the unedited is where you spend most of your time these days. It seems yeah, like, um, I think the unedited account, having an unedited account is sort of a nightmare because then like, I don't know, like it's hard to like discern where each tweet should go, like on the regular account or the unedited account. But I think right. mostly I use the unedited account if I'm like on drugs or something, you can't tell if my tweets are funny or if I want to like <laughs> tweet 20 times in a row or something like that. See, I, does Twitter torture you? Tell me it uh, does. Cause you tweet so prolifically, <laughs> you tweet so much. And I feel like, so there are, so there are a lot of people who are this way. I'm like, Oh, they're just enjoying it. And they're not self-conscious and they're confident in what they're saying. And they're just making tweets. I, labor or mentally labor over everything. Like it, I second guess myself and I'll stare at my feed and be like, should I delete that? You know, like it's just, it's a nightmare for me. Like, how do you do it? Um, occasionally like I'll post something and then it like, won't get any favorites or something. And I'll think like, man, I'm, this is a bad tweet. I should delete this. Sometimes I do delete it. Um, It's all about external approval. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say I need external validation. That's, that's what Twitter's all about. But, um, I think like, I don't know, after a while of tweeting enough, I, I feel like I'm used to it or something. Like, I feel like it's not stressful. It's more fun or something. You're in the zone. You just, (laughs) you've entered another realm. I guess so. I, I mean, sometimes I'll like labor over a tweet. Like sometimes I'll have a tweet or like an idea for a tweet and I'll be staring at my phone and think like, how do I make this 140 characters? Like, I don't, I can't get the right words out or something. And then I'll post it and it'll get you know, no attention. I'll be like, man, I'm an idiot. Like, this is not, <laughs> this is not good. Or the worst is when like, I, I finally get what I think is like a really good tweet and I'm excited about it and I put it up and you know, I'm half asleep or I'll be in bed, like fighting insomnia or whatever it is. And then, uh, you know, I'll tweet like two or three times after that. And then I'll go back and reread and realize that I misspelled a word. <laughs> and then I'm so anal retentive that I'll be like, I have to delete this, but it's a good tweet. And it got like five favorites or That's whatever. That's the worst. 
And then you're like, okay, I'm just going to delete it and then I'll just repost it. But then people who already read it will be like, he's reposting it. You know what I'm saying? It's a, that's the kind of psychological, yeah. you know, downward spiral that I can find. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that definitely does happen to me. And I think like with the unedited account, that's probably like why I made it so that I could just post things that were misspelled or like a million things in a row or things that even aren't that funny or something like that. And people are expecting it because it's an unedited account. Um, yeah. And then I use my other account for things that I need a pseudonym. I need a pseudonym <laughs> just across the board. I need to develop all, you know, uh, what do you call them? Alter egos. Oh yeah. And just like solve this problem. It's all <laughs> rooted. Brad unedited. I don't know what, no, but I don't even want people to know it's me. It's going to be some <laughs> weird thing and I can just test stuff out. Yeah. But then nobody will favorite it. Nobody yeah. will follow you. Nobody no cares. Right. Nobody cares about a pseudonym. They care about Brad listening. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's even questionable. <laughs> So, okay. So alt lit, mm-hmm. talk to me about it, explain it to me or give me your perspective on it and how you became involved with it. Oh God. I mean, um, do you feel like you're a part of some sort of movement or do you feel like you're part of some sort of tribe of writers? This is a question that I have a really hard time answering, I think, um, because I definitely do feel like there is a movement and there are these writers on the internet who are trying to do something that is alternative and it's it's different from traditional publishing different from traditional writing and you know people like Talon are doing something that's appealing to this very specific audience and you know possibly has mass appeal um but you know don't have enough money for food and things like that um and are are trying to get published through different venues and i think that alt lit is important in the sense that you know young people like me and stuff like that are are, they have an opportunity to share their work it's like a literary show and tell or something like that and it's internet based yeah at least at its beginnings i mean it's i think at its core it's yeah i mean i think the whole like outlet movement started with tau and people being a fan of tau and i think that that branch how did that happen how did you come to, to find his work um i a good friend of mine lent me Bed, which was his short story collection. Um, and like, you know, we had shared books a lot. Um, and he was like, you know, I really love this book. This is a great author. Like, I really think you should read this. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll read it. So wait, a teenage boy gave you a book called Bed and was like, I think you should read this. <laughs> I see what was happening. Here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, that's pretty much how it went down <laughs> All right. you're trying to insinuate something different but I'll let it pass. No, i just i know how teenage boys are <laughs> um yeah and he let me the book and i read it and like i couldn't put it down i mean i immediately identified with it um i immediately felt like wow there's other people who think in a similar way that i think and who write in a similar way that i want to write and i i found it really interesting that it was different than other books that i had read because like I could read this book and then I could, you know, go online and email the main characters. You know, it's it was this really um, it's really interesting how Tao's life and now the life of other online writers are sort of intermingled with their books in this way. Um, so it's almost like beyond the book itself and into their actual life, which I found really interesting. And I think then after I read Bed, I immediately like read all of his other books i read like the you know cognitive behavioral therapy and you're a little bit happier than i am and richard yates and all of that um and then i you know i started reading things on Moo house and started like branching out to other writers who i saw on Moo house and you know reading things by like 
you know, Blake Butler and Megan Boyle and all of that, um, and immediately realized there was this, like, group of people who had a similar sense of humor to me and things like that. Um, and I never expected to get involved in it, really. Like, you know, I'd read things on Moomoo House and think it was interesting, and, you know, I followed all of them on Twitter and stuff like that. Um, and then, at some point, I think I started interacting with maybe Spencer Madsen or something like that, or Jordan Castro, and uh, only, like, you know, very minimally, like, emailing sometimes and stuff like that. Um, and I never, like, publish any writing or anything. And then, at some point, Tao started favoriting some of my tweets on my Twitter account, and, like, you know, I saw it and I was like, whoa, how did he even find me? And to this day, I'm actually not entirely sure how he found me. Um, but then I think I sent him some, like, really like embarrassing email that was like, I really like your writing and like even favoriting my tweets. Hi. And he responded like almost immediately, like saying that he wanted to edit my tweets onto Moomoo house. And I was like, Whoa, okay. That's, that's cool. There you go. <laughs> um, and I guess that's kind of how it all started. And I started getting like, like submitting my work other places after that and getting like solicited to be published places and stuff. So it gave you confidence. Yeah, kind of. And it like sort of, I think introduced me to the world of like online literature and getting published places and things like, you know, before that I didn't even know of like any places that I could submit, let alone like have the confidence to submit to those places. Um, and I think after that, like, you know, people would see it. And then if I, I had a Tumblr for a while where I would post poetry and things like that. Um, and a few people followed it. And then I think like, I don't know people would read it and, enjoy my writing and I got solicited to be published a few places and sort of just snowballed after that a little bit. So talk about some other contemporaries in like the alt universe or just contemporary writers who you like, who are maybe of your generation. Um, I feel like as far as like reading books, I, I read a lot of things that aren't that contemporary. Like I read a lot of things that aren't really people of my generation. Um, what about online? I mean, you know, cause so much of, I, I feel like so much of literature these days is consumed online, especially poetry and yeah, you know, like, are, you know, there, are there things online or places online that you go that you think are just really, really great? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's definitely like every time a new lit journal or something like that is out, like I'll go through it and you know, read all of the other writers, something that I'm publishing, I'll read, um, things by other people. I mean, there's definitely like writers online who I really enjoy. Like, I really like Blake Butler's writing a lot and he's had some success like outside of the internet. Um, I like Megan Boyle's writing a lot. I like Sam Pink's writing a lot. Um, Scott McClanahan. Um, I'm reading right now, You Private Person by, and I'm going to pronounce his last name wrong, Richard Chim, I think. Um, which is fantastic. I love that. Um, and I think a lot of, a lot of writing by people who are of my same generation, I think I consume online, like in like short, like poems or short stories or things like that, that happen to be published various places. And how much interaction do you have with these people? Like, is there like, what's happening out there socially <laughs> with like all that people, like, are there relationships, like real relationships being formed that you feel like you've built friendships or have you ever, is there, has there ever been like flirtation and things happening? Like what's the subtext here? Yeah. I mean, I think that like within the, the scene, I think that there's a lot of real relationships that are being formed and a lot of people are like 
dating each other or having sex with each other or being friends or things like that. I mean, I know I've definitely formed, like, very real friendships. With whom? Um, I'm really good friends with Spencer Madsen. He came to L.A. and stayed with me for a while. Um, Spencer Madsen and Wills Plummer are the people who are helping me publish my book. Um, so I'm, like, definitely very close with them. I've obviously, like, developed friendships with a lot of people on Moomoo House and things like that. Um, I mean, I've, I'm moving in with Stephen Tully Dirks for a month when I go to New York. Um, you know, I, I think I've interacted with, like, so many people online and, like, related to so many people online. It's really interesting, I think, that I can read something that... I enjoy by someone and then email them telling them that I enjoyed their writing. I feel like that's something that people didn't have the opportunity to do a lot of times. Yeah. The access to the author is the internet's totally revolutionized that. Yeah. And I think for the better, I mean like some authors still like to live in their little ivory tower, but most authors are accessible. Yeah. And I really, I mean, definitely enjoy that about like the scene. I think like as much as like I can feel negatively sometimes um and this i don't mean that in a bad way or anything like i can occasionally feel a little bit negatively about the term alt lit i think um just because because there's so much and the internet is so big and there's so many writers who are involved in the scene that i think a lot of times things can get like sweeped under the rug or something sort of um like just because of the quantity of the writing and I um I think that there's some really quality writers who I really enjoy reading within the scene um but I think mostly what I enjoy about it is the ability to create friendships and relationships and to interact with people who write things that you relate to and then you know, be able to have a relationship with that person, I think is... Well, I mean, look at you. You're getting ready to move to, across the country to Brooklyn and you have a place to live yeah. and you're going to have like a whole social group, or at least it seems that way because of the internet. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think a, a lot of people have definitely had that. I mean, I, there's definitely people who've had long-term relationships because they met someone, you know, through the online literary scene and, you know... People- See, I've always said this. I've always... Because, like, obviously online dating is a thing and it's big and it works and it's a billion-dollar industry. And what I always said is that if there was some way to make, like, a literary dating site, which I guess these things are functioning as in some capacity anyhow, it would be really effective because what better way to get to know who somebody is than to read their innermost thoughts? Yeah, well, and I think that that's, like... That's a huge thing, definitely, in, like, this alt lit scene because I think it's it's um the name almost doesn't really encompass what it is because it's more than just it's like internet lit yeah it's it's more than just writing it's like interacting with people and even there's people who are in the alt lit scene and maybe even don't write but just enjoy the writing of other people or people who write less or people who have success, you know, in the, in the real world of literature, if that's what you want to call it. Um, but also interact with people on this alt lit scene. I think it's more than, than just writing and sharing your writing. It's like a, like a social interaction. It's, um, it's like a show and tell, like you can show, this is what I'm writing and, you know, here it is. And then people who enjoy it can come to you and say that they enjoy it. And then you form relationships with those people. And I think that's... Do you ever get negative feedback? Like, I fucking hated this? <laughs> um, I think I... 
maybe. I think I haven't received a lot of negative feedback. I think I'm like lucky in that sense, but I think I've definitely received a few like anonymous questions on Tumblr and things. Um, you know, just like not really ever anything specific, just like, fuck you, or like, what the fuck are you doing? Or like, stop tweeting so fucking much. Like, or like, do you really do that many drugs? Like, I think you're a fucking liar. Like, you know, stuff like that. Like, just vague, vague things. And it doesn't really bother me. It's like anonymous. It's kind of funny or something almost, but... Nothing really mean. Yeah, no, nothing like personal. So who is the biggest alt-lit heartthrob out there? Like, what's happening? (laughs) This is a trick question. Come on. I don't know if I know how to answer that. Is question. there like a you know like if this is like the nineteen late seventies early eighties? Who's like the Scott Bayo of <laughs> alt lit? I don't even know if you would know who Scott Bayo is. I'm trying to think of a comparable. The Corey Haim. Mm. No, that's that's still not right. The Justin Bieber. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think I know how to. I mean, I think like. Who is your alt lit crush? Come on. <laughs> You know, for the record, I saw Brad the other night. He told me he was going to ask me this on the podcast. And I said, please, God, don't ask me that. And now now he is. Um, I keep my word. I think... Uh... Frank Hinton. I think she's my outlet crush. See, I think I'm going to go on the record. I think Frank's a man. You think Frank's a man? Yeah. Wow. You heard it here, you guys. Brad I swing. Frank is a man. I swing back and forth, huh. but I'm currently of the belief that Frank is uh, actually a male. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I feel that could be true. I don't know. I've always just assumed Frank is a girl, so I've always imagined And you think that Frank you think that she's girl? really that girl, like the super super the attractive cute one? Yeah, with like the glasses. It's I like I mean, if she is, she's really good looking. Yeah, you know. I don't <laughs> know. I if just, she's I... not, then she's doing an incredible job of pretending to be that girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's very interesting. I wonder. You know, maybe Frank's Frank. I you know, I I've tried to get Frank to come on the show, but uh whoever she he he or she is cagey. <laughs> So I think I think that Frank is a man. Yeah, I think until I'm persuaded a, otherwise. <laughs> man until proven woman. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, there's a lot of like anonymous like people on the internet. Well, yeah, that's the thing about the internet is that it allows for those sorts of yeah. like identity games, and that can make people. It's a, and, and it's a great way to lure people into your writing because Definitely. it's like, oh, well, who is this person? And then you you sexualize it. And it's like, oh, I'm so hot, and I'm in a mini skirt. No, you can see my cleavage, but you can't see my face. You know, and it's like, okay, you know, and, and that's uh, it's savvy. Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely, and like Frank is such a talented writer, and everything like that, and the whole, I mean, the whole thing that he or she is doing is like so. Compelling. I think Frank is Carl's. Like <laughs> Carl's. That's a, I haven't heard about Carl's in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> kind of forgot about Carl. Let's see. That's another one, though. It's like this mysterious identity. Wasn't there know? a photo of Carl's like leaked at some point? Isn't he like a? He's like a regular-looking Mexican guy, I think. Is he? And then yeah. like there's Beach Sloth, you know, yeah, who and also hides. And yeah, yeah. I no. like all these things just float in front of my computer screen. Yeah. I feel like I, I think most people feel at a remove, but yet you're like watching it and you're like, who is these people? Are so familiar. Yeah. And what's so weird to me is that like uh, you know I will see these things on the internet or I'll read people over and over again and I'll have this like vague understanding of what they look like and then every once in a while I'll meet them in person and when I do. I'm almost never surprised. It's always like, oh, hey. Yeah. Oh, so you're beach sloth, you know, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've definitely noticed that. Like, I think people can often have this idea about the internet. Like, everyone is a predator or something. And I right. think, like, for a long time, people had that idea. Um, 
But at least in my experience, like, meeting people from the internet, like, they tend to not be very far off from how they present themselves on the internet. Right. Like, I try and present myself in a way that isn't too far off from how I actually That's how am. I am. I, that, yeah. See, this is the thing that frustrates me. It's like, quit playing games. <laughs> Tell me who you are. <laughs> That's why I do this show. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it's like there's so much, you know, it's like I have questions. And it's like I want to just talk to people because the internet, that's one of the things about the internet that, that can be frustrating is, uh, especially when you have lots of different people playing identity games, it's like, well, okay, so who's real and who's not and what's happening here? And Yeah, I mean, I think that's to- what I'm trying to do with the internet, at least. Like, I f- don't feel interested in, like, keeping anything secret. Like, I'll, like, you know, post tweets and read them and be like, man, that's really inappropriate. I shouldn't share that with the internet and then immediately post it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, like, am interested in being an open book because, like, I liked so much with Tao's books and things like that, how I could read the book and then literally research the characters in it or research Tao and, you know, read interviews with him where he's totally open about a bunch of things. And that was so interesting to me. And I love reading, like, you know, biographies of authors and things like that to be able to know what they're like as an actual person. And I think that the internet is so convenient for that to be able to, like, show who you actually are apart from your writing so okay so when you when it comes to like your approach to fiction in the days to come as you like you know take on a novel or whatever do you anticipate yourself writing like a autobiographical fiction that really is based on your own experience and has like maybe a first person narrator named mira or something like that yeah i think so i think that all of the poems in my book are definitely um autobiographical like it's all like about feelings that I had or or relationships that I had or, you know, things like that. And I think that if I, or when I hopefully write a novel or short stories or something, I think they'll definitely be autobiographical. Um, I have like a vague interest in writing pure fiction that isn't about my life, but I think that the books that I enjoy reading tend to be at least somewhat autobiographical. See, this is my problem. I want to write one of those, but my life is so fucking boring. <laughs> I podcasted today. I sat in front of my computer. I played, you know, uh, whatever, dolls with my daughter. I mean, not that these things aren't great, but I mean, you know, like, yeah. I just, uh, I like those kinds of books too. And I like when there's not much room in between the author and the page and yeah. you sort of feel like you're hearing about their lives, you know? Yeah. And that's what I would, I would like to do. I mean, I often feel like my life isn't interesting enough to write about or something. And I think that oftentimes I like seek out experiences that even if they're negative, if it's interesting and it's something that I could write about, then yeah. it seems valuable to me. Sure. So even like, you know, a bad situation I could, I, I at least have seeked it out. Like what? Um, <laughs> I wrote a story recently that was published on unreality house. Um, it's called Chris, and it's going to be really bad if he's listening to it, but uh, it was about a guy who I met at a show. Um, what show? It was like a, a band was playing. I don't remember what band. It wasn't a band that I had ever heard before, but it was at The Smell in downtown, um, and he was the sound engineer for that venue. And I think I was... I had, like snorted Xanax or something like (laughs) earlier in the night and like drank alcohol. And I was like, you know, not really myself. And, um, at some point, like he asked for my number and I gave it to him. And then the next day he sent me a text that was like, when are we meeting up today? I was like, 
all right, like, whatever, sure, might as well meet up with this guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was really, we, like, went to the beach, and then, this is going to be interesting if my parents are listening to this podcast. Hi, Mommy. Um, <laughs> uh, we, like, went to the do beach. Do you call her Mommy? I do, yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, my brother also does. My older brother calls Hello, her Mommy. mommy. Yeah, hello. Um, Anyways, and we, like, went to the beach, and there's people around, and he sort of, like, tried to start having sex with me while the people were, like, ten feet away, and I was like, I don't want to do that, let's go back to your apartment, and then we did, and he, like, sort of started to, like, ask me to, he asked me to call him daddy, and I said no, um, <laughs> and it was just a very weird experience, if you want to read the story, you can, um, but afterwards I just felt terrible, I was like, God, that was a weird, weird situation, and... That was awful, and I never want to do that again. But then I wrote a story, and people seemed to enjoy it. So <laughs> you're like, like, well, all right, it was worth it. So the moral of the story is, ladies and gentlemen, always hang out with creepy or take the date with the creepy guy who <laughs> yeah. wants you to call him daddy. Yeah. Oh, he was old, by the way. That was the main part of the story. He was like 44 or something oh, like God. that, and I didn't, I didn't realize he was that old. Um, and I told him how old I was. I was like, I'm 20. And he was like, oh, okay. And then only afterwards, I was like, how old are you? And he was like, oh, I'm 44. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to gonna leave right now and never, ever speak to you again. Wow. Yeah. It was an interesting situation. Well, uh, it's been fun talking with you. This <laughs> is good. a good note to end. It's a good note, yeah. <laughs> but no, it has been fun talking with you. I wish you luck on your move uh, to Brooklyn. Thank you. And you're, I guess you're going to be going to school. Yes. And uh, I wish you luck with the poetry collection. Thank you. And are you driving out there or are you flying out there? I'm flying, yeah. Okay. Well, I would tell you to drive safe, but you're flying, so. Yeah, I'm going to drive home after this, so you can tell me to drive home safe. Okay, drive safe. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, you guys, that does it. That is Mira Gonzalez. Go get her book. It is out next month, January 2013, from Sorry House. I believe it's January 26th or uh, thereabouts. Buy it, read it, share it with your friends and family members. You can find Mira on the Twitter at Mira Gons. She's also on the Facebook, and she's also uh, got a Tumblr presence. So thank you to Kill Rockstars for the theme song. And uh, thanks to the band Stereo Total, the name of that song, in case you were wondering, and I know some of you have emailed me about this, the name of that song is, uh, it's called L-A-C-A-U-S-A. That's the theme music for this program, and it's by a band called Stereo Total. So I'm going to sign off now. Uh, I feel uh, a little bloated, to be honest with you. I feel like I'm eating too much already. Uh, that's the thing with the holidays. Uh, I feel like I've eaten too many sweets. I just ate a cupcake not too long ago because it was there. And uh, I feel like there are these, like, bowls of candy everywhere or something during the holidays, even though I'm not even entirely sure if I've actually seen a bowl of candy. It just feels like they're there, if that makes any sense. Please remember that Balzac sounds almost exactly like Balsack and that Sigmund Freud suffered from chronic constipation. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes today's program. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Go get the app if you haven't done that already. Have you done that? Huh? the official Other People app. It's out there. It's free. You can uh, acquire it. I'll be back uh, in just a few days with more programming. The day after Christmas, I think. Somewhere in there uh, with another episode for your enjoyment. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're having an okay time this holiday season. Uh, are you having an okay time? Are you eating from bowls of candy? If so, uh, that is wonderful. If not, then uh, please bear down. 
just uh, just bear down until it is over. And uh, speaking of which, what does it mean to bear down? What does it actually mean to bear down? Like, does it mean you're just like looking down? Are you in a crouch? What is happening there? Can somebody tell me that? That seems like a strange one. It reminds me that sometimes when I'm talking, I don't even know what I'm saying. <laughs> 